Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Cato Institute's F.A. Hayek Auditorium. My name is Jim Harper. I'm Director of Information Policy Studies here at Cato. My colleague Julian Sanchez and I are very pleased to welcome all of you here and to have uh, very many people joining us online today as well. In mid-June, a few weeks after the news broke about the National Security Agency gathering data about the phone calling of every Verizon customer and likely many more people throughout the United States, I got a call from a reporter who wanted to know how things look from the privacy advocate perspective. I said to him, I love this. This is awesome. Well, obviously he was interested in the anger and the upset at the underlying policies. But I was delighted personally to be here at the Cato Institute at a time when we can make arguments that are so important to liberty, so important to Fourth Amendment and privacy protection here in the United States. The Verizon order is the first example I know of in some 230 years of a general warrant being issued in the United States. This is a matter over which the Revolutionary War was fought, and it was a matter that the Fourth Amendment was designed to protect against. And I'm in a position to make those arguments because I'm here at the Cato Institute, a libertarian think tank. Cato's not a conservative think tank. It's not just a free market think tank. But it protects e economic liberty and civil liberties together. When those two things are available to people, people will flourish. Cato's the organization that makes that argument most consistently and most loudly in Washington, D.C., perhaps around the world. Now, we don't require every visitor to Cato to agree with everything that the Cato Institute has to say. And I'll turn the dais over to Senator Wyden in just a moment after we go through some of the order of the day. I want to encourage you here in the audience and, and the folks watching online to stick with us throughout the day. Because after a superlative presentation from Senator Wyden and a terrific panel uh, about the, uh, from the, the uh, reporters who've been working so assiduously on this issue, we're going to have Representative Justin Amash from Michigan speak at lunch. He's been a leader on this issue. Following that, in the afternoon, we'll have panels on the legal issues and the technical challenges involved in securing our privacy. Then, Representative Jim Sensenbrenner, who takes credit for the Patriot Act, will come and discuss his concerns with the current policies exercised by the National Security Agency. Finally, we'll have an essential panel on reforms. Reform is in the air, and we want to have a very good discussion and perhaps a broadening discussion about the reforms that will be considered soon in Congress. So there's a lot of good material today, and I urge you to stay with us throughout the day, not only because we'll follow things up at 4.30 with a wine and cheese reception in the Winter Garden. <laughs> Please silence your cell phones, not for one reason, but for two. Yes, it's a courtesy to your colleagues here at the, at the event, but it also helps to show that you have technical sophistication, <laughs> and that's very important. The hashtag for today's event is pound Cato NSA. For those of you tweeting here, for those of you watching online and tweeting, use pound Cato NSA to participate in conversation with one another and to communicate to others that this event is going on. If you are watching online, uh, send the URL to, for the event to your friends, uh, tweet it out there, email it out there in uh, Facebook or whatever, if that's still a thing. Uh, with so much ground to cover, we have produced a bio booklet. Uh, that, that, that takes care of, hopefully, the, the biographies of the people. We want not to talk about them, but to hear from them. So if you haven't picked up a bio booklet already, uh, pick it up to learn more about our speakers and discussants. It's available online at the, Cato, at the event page for this at cato.org as well. In that, in that vein, uh, I don't want to introduce Senator Wyden by talking about a list of accomplishments, of which he has many, but I want to talk about a virtue that he's shown uh, in the debate over federal government surveillance law and practice. That virtue is patience. He's been working at this issue for a very long time. Uh, I could hardly recite all the examples, but the ones I know of include his visiting Cato in January of 2011 to talk about location tracking. At that event, without his prompting or prompting of his staff, I talked about the case of Smith versus Maryland, which is relied on today by the government to justify the mass surveillance of telephone calling information. That event was called Location Tracking Technology and Privacy. In the summer of 2012, he was back here to talk about the FISA Amendments Act, 
an event that Julian Sanchez put together. Senator Wyden has been pulling together the intellectual arguments and the intellectual allies that he needs today, not knowing when this debate would happen. And he didn't know that this debate would happen on March 12th, when in an open hearing, he asked Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper, a very important question. He asked whether the National Security Agency collects, quote, any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans, close quote. Clapper answered, no, sir. Then he added famously, not wittingly. <laughs> this answer was false. Senator Wyden knew it at the time, and we all know it now. When I watch the video of that, I want to put my hands through the video screen and take someone by the lapels. But Senator Wyden took that question. He took that question and let it become part of the groundwork he was laying for the debate he did not know would happen. But now it's happening, and he's laid the groundwork for the debate with assiduous work over years and years and the patience of a monument. Now Senator Wyden is making himself a monument to privacy and civil liberties protection in the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, Senator Ron Wyden. What? <clears throat> What an inflationary introduction. <clears throat> and let me start by saying that, in my view, a good way to measure the credibility of scholars and thinkers in Washington is by watching to see whether they can stay true to their views, regardless of the impact their views have on partisan politics. That's why Cato scholars like Jim and Julian Sanchez, are the go-to leaders, the people we look to for leadership on these issues of security and liberty. And big thanks to you, Jim, and, and to Julian for having me today. Let me begin by saying that this conference could not be more timely. The Senate Intelligence Committee is going to soon be marking up a new surveillance bill. And the House and the Senate Judiciary Committees are working on legislation as well. <clears throat> Two weeks ago, a bipartisan group of senators, myself included, kicked off this debate by introducing the first comprehensive bipartisan surveillance reform bill following the June disclosures. Our legislation would end the bulk collection of Americans' records, close the backdoor search loophole that allows Americans' communications to be reviewed without a warrant, make the FISA court operate more like a court that's worthy of our wonderful country, and expand the ability of our citizens to have their grievances heard in the federal courts. Now, these issues are all going to be discussed today, so I thought I'd start with my bottom line. The goal of our bipartisan bill is to set the bar for measuring what really constitutes real intelligence reform. And the reason our bipartisan group wanted to put this marker down early is because we know in the months ahead, we are going to be up against what I call the business as usual brigade. They're the influential members of the government's intelligence leadership, their allies and think tanks and academia, some retired government officials, and sympathetic legislators. And their objective, and I want to state this clearly right at the outset, is to fog up the surveillance de debate and convince the Congress and the public that the real problem here is not overly intrusive, constitutionally flawed domestic surveillance, but the real problem 
is all that sensationalistic media reporting. And their end game is ensuring that any surveillance reforms are only skin deep. Some of the business as usual arguments have a little bit of a Alice in Wonderland flavor. We have heard that surveillance of Americans' phone records, AKA metadata, is not actually surveillance at all. It's simply the collection of you know, bits of information. We've been told that falsehoods aren't really falsehoods. They're just imprecise statements. We've been told that rules that have repeatedly been broken are actually a valuable check on government overreach. <clears throat> and we've been told that codifying secret surveillance laws and making them public surveillance laws is really the same thing as actually reforming overreaching surveillance programs. Suffice it to say, and I'll explain why, it is no such thing. These arguments, of course, leave the public with a distorted picture of what the government is actually up to. Those tiny bits of information, when put together, paint an illuminating picture of what the private lives of law-abiding Americans are really like. Erroneous statements that are made on the public record but are never corrected mislead the public and other members of Congress as well. Privacy protections, so-called, that don't actually protect privacy, are not worth the paper they're printed on. And just because intelligence officials say that a particular program helps catch terrorists does not make it true. This is some of the peculiar logic, like the false choice between security and liberty, that I think we are certain to hear from the business as usual brigade, and they are going to double down with that argument to protect the status quo. Now, I want to spend a few more minutes talking about the specifics that are going to be part of what we'll hear from this corner. Now, I'm encouraged that the president has said that he supports the creation of an independent advocate to argue cases before the FISA court. I also believe that the intelligence leadership is going to argue for limiting the advocate's mandate, and the advocate's resources. They will most likely propose that the advocate should only be allowed to argue cases at the request of FISA court judges, and that he or she should not be allowed to appeal cases or assist private companies and individuals that wish to challenge overly broad surveillance orders. In reality, you create this kind of uh, approach where you don't have a mandate and you don't have the resources that are needed for you know, real oversight. What you would have is their cover for business as usual. The executive branch has also begun declassifying information about domestic surveillance authorities and activities in response to the disclosures by the media and the lawsuits filed on the free, under the Freedom of Information Act. I think the expectation is that that will continue. But when it comes to greater transparency and openness, the executive branch has shown little interest in lasting reforms that would actually make the intelligence community more open and transparent. And executive branch, branch officials are probably going to resist the attempts to mandate greater transparency. My view is, is this is hugely unfortunate because requiring the government to be more open about the official interpretation. In other words, this is not the secret operations. The official interpretation of the law is critical. It's the only way that our people can decide whether or not laws need to be changed. 
I also expect the defenders of business as usual to try to codify the surveillance authorities that reformers want to repeal. Friends, from a privacy and liberty perspective, this is truly a dangerous proposition. It would spark a new era of digital surveillance in our country and serve as a big rubber stamp of approval for invading the rights of law-abiding Americans. The argument is going to be from these defenders of business as usual is that the government is going to be collecting lots and lots of data on innocent Americans, but nobody ought to really worry because there are rules about who gets to look at it and when. There are multiple and serious problems with this trust us argument. Number one, when the Founding Fathers wrote the Fourth Amendment, they didn't say it's okay to issue general warrants as long as you have the rules for when you're allowed to look at the papers you seize. The Founding Fathers said that the government should only be allowed to obtain somebody's private papers and effects if they have evidence that that person is involved in a crime or, in effect, nefarious activities. And the reason they said that is that collecting private information about people has an impact on their privacy, whether you actually look at it or not, the views of Director Clapper notwithstanding. Number two, none of these rules involves individual review by a judge. If the NSA decides that it wants to look through the bulk phone records database or conduct a backdoor search for a particular American's emails, it can do so without getting the approval of anyone outside the NSA. So I would argue there aren't enough independent checks on the government's authority there. For number three, I'll go back to looking at the actual track record of the intelligence agencies. The rules have been broken, and the rules have been broken a lot. In 2009, the FISA court itself ruled, and I quote, the minimization procedures proposed by the government in each successive application and approved as binding by the orders, the orders of the FISA court, have been so frequently and systematically violated that it can be fairly said that this critical element of the overall regime, the business records regime, has never functioned effectively. You know what that means in kind of English, you know, not legal jargon. I'm a lawyer kind of name only. That's legalese for a serious smackdown of the government by the court. That's what we're talking about here. Even if these rules were somehow written in a way that totally erased the privacy impact of bulk records collection, I don't happen to think it's possible. The fact is that the routine violations of these rules over the years clearly demonstrates that trying to rely on this approach is seriously flawed. So the defenders of business as usual are going to argue that the best way to protect Americans' rights is to codify these rules into law. Maybe we'll give them a little tweak around the edges here and there, but we really ought to embed them in the law. This would be a huge mistake. Codifying the rules for bulk phone records collection into law will just make this constitutionally flawed program more permanent. And putting a congressional imprimatur on invading the rights of law-abiding Americans is a mistake that Congress would regret. In particular, it makes it easier for the executive branch to use the Patriot Act to collect other types of records in bulk in the future. This could include medical records, financial records, library records, 
firearm records. The list goes on. The executive branch has refused to rule out using the Patriot Act to collect these records. So any of them, any of them could be up for grabs. If the rules for bulk phone records collection are written into law that will make it easier to argue the use of the Patriot Act for bulk collection was deliberately authorized by the elected representatives of the people, that's not in the public interest. Codifying the bulk collection program into law will usher in a new era of digital surveillance, and it will normalize overbroad authorities that were once considered unthinkable in our country. Now, defenders of this business-as-usual approach, as I call it, were clearly hoping that public outrage about these programs would fade once there were details uh, out there so that people had a better understanding of what has occurred. And you'll recall that was a comment made early on. That, you know, once people just know more about it, all this um, sensationalistic you know, media reporting will be exposed you know, for what it is, and people will feel comfortable with what has been reported. But the exact opposite has happened. The more information people learn about these programs, the less they actually like them. The polls show that public opinion has moved significantly in a pro-reform direction since those initial disclosures were made back in June. The fact is that most Americans think their government can protect our security and our liberty. These two are not mutually exclusive. And a lot of Americans feel that there hadn't been enough effort by elected officials to delivering on both of those counts. As a result of this groundswell of public concern, members of Congress have been uh, outlining ideas for reforms. We're going to talk a lot about various proposals you know, today. Let me just suggest that this discussion has essentially evolved in three phases. The first phase was in the immediate aftermath of the June uh, disclosure, disclosures. Then you had a number of members of Congress in effect reintroducing ideas they had proposed in the past and were considered newly relevant given the disclosures of June. I was among those, and Senator Udall and I brought forth an idea that we felt strongly about, and that is to end bulk collection of the phone records on law-abiding Americans. The second phase unfolded over the following months as members who hadn't been as extensively involved started to develop additional ideas. This included reforming the FISA court, allowing private companies to disclose more information about their cooperation with the government. The third phase begins now, and you have members of Congress trying to take the best ideas about the important issues and meld them in to a comprehensive reform agenda. That's what I and Senator Udall and Senator Paul and Senator Blumenthal sought to do with the bill we introduced uh, several uh, weeks ago. I also want to commend uh, Chairman uh, Pat Leahy, who has done yeoman work in this area for many years, and he's working on a promising package in the Senate a Judiciary uh, Committee uh, at this time. So I offer up that reformers are in a better position uh, today, but we know that the challenge of getting reform over that bar that I described uh, earlier is still going to involve a lot of work and convincing some who have not been with us in the past. We know that uh, defenders of business as usual are going to use what I call the language of reform. I wish I had a nickel for 
Each time I heard a senior intelligence official say that their agency is open to considering a particular change in the law. The reality is you're going to hear a lot of that in the days ahead. And they're going to talk about the need to make changes, restore public confidence. But make no mistake about it, behind the scenes, they're going to be working very hard to preserve the existing authorities. And those intelligence leaders are going to pull out all the stops. We saw some of that in the House you know, vote that uh, was held uh, earlier. They will pull out all the stops to try to hold off the kind of real reforms I've described. Now, the effects of these constitutionally flawed, overly intrusive surveillance uh, programs also, and this will become an increasingly important part of the upcoming uh, debate, these flaws go beyond the intrusion on the individual privacy of our people. American companies that are believed to have been the subject of government surveillance uh, orders are taking a major hit internationally and here at home. This is a serious economic issue at a time when we all know our economy uh, certainly is fragile. In the global marketplace, American digital companies, especially those that have to reach those markets thousands of miles away, are, are going to lose ground, serious ground, to foreign competition. And it will put tens of thousands of high-paying American jobs at risk if this trend continues. Let me tell you, if a foreign enemy was doing this much damage to our economy, people would be in the streets with pitchforks. Now, the companies that are now filing lawsuits to force the government to allow them to release more information about how many surveillance uh, orders they've received are, in effect, trying to repair some of the damage that's been uh, caused. We ought to make no mistake about what's ahead. Just in the last week, I was talking to a company president from one of America's leading digital service companies. And the very first thing this executive said, the first thing they said when they came to the office was what a big impact the unchecked domestic surveillance was having on their company. Now, to be fair, I don't expect NSA officials to spend their time thinking about the economic impact that unrestrained surveillance law-abiding Americans and companies can have. But the policymakers who sign off on these overly broad surveillance programs absolutely ought to be thinking about the impact that these flawed programs have on American jobs and on the trust that is so important for American companies to have around the world. They didn't win that trust by osmosis. They won it over the years with responsible practices. And these overly broad surveillance rules are putting that good work at risk. One final take with respect to the arguments that we're going to hear from the defenders of the practices we have uh, today. They're going to argue, and you've seen some of it uh, already pretty vociferously, that any intelligence employee who's alarmed about surveillance activities that may be illegal, harmful, or ineffective already has plenty of avenues for raising concerns. The reality is, even if an employee had reason to think that raising concerns through official channels would do some good, the fact is the current whistleblower laws are deeply flawed. And it doesn't make much sense to speak up if you have to take your complaint 
to the person and group that you're complaining about. Last year, the Senate passed a bill that sought to address these concerns. It died in the House. As part of the reform effort, Congress needs to strengthen the hands of whistleblowers to ensure that they have the opportunity to come forward in the days ahead. So you're going to see a spirited debate between advocates of real and meaningful and lasting surveillance reform and defenders of business uh, as usual. And I'm just going to close by outlining a little bit of what I've sought to do in a bipartisan way with colleagues and what I think the bar for reform is all about. First and foremost, meaningful reform has to end the bulk collection of Americans' records. A FISA court order that allows the NSA to collect the records of huge numbers of ordinary Americans with no connection to terrorism, these various kinds of nefarious acts, is exactly the sort of general warrant that our founding fathers sought to prevent when they wrote the Fourth Amendment. Even worse, the NSA can't even demonstrate that this bulk collection provides value beyond what their existing authorities give them. Back in June, intelligence officials kept suggesting that bulk phone records collection had helped in 54 terrorism investigations. The fact is that number has not held up. It has not held up under real scrutiny. The number seems to just keep going down and down and down. The last time I checked, it was sort of in the ballpark of one or two cases in the last six years. Moreover, in actual emergency situations, the law already allows the government to get phone records immediately and then get court approval after the fact. And the reform bill that our bipartisan group introduced two weeks ago would make this authority even clearer and stronger. It wouldn't be unreasonable to ask why intelligence agencies need bulk collection if they have these authorities. I know, and after two years of questioning, I have not gotten an answer from the NSA on it. In fact, at the August 1 meeting with the president, and it's in the Oval Office, I'll say what I said, not what the president you know, said, I can tell you that this is going to be an ongoing concern, and I raised it that day. Intelligence officials say that they think the bulk phone records program is important, but their track record here should make people skeptical. Until 2011, the NSA also ran a bulk email records program under the authority of the Patriot Act. Intelligence officials spent years telling both Congress and the FISA court that this program was absolutely vital to U.S. counterterrorism efforts. The only problem with that statement is it wasn't true. Wasn't true at all. Senator Udall and I spent most of 2011 pressing the NSA to provide actual examples of the bulk email records program effectiveness, but NSA was unable to do that. The bulk email records program was shut down that year. A big win for supporters of privacy and constitutional liberties, and Senator Udall and I knew it, but we couldn't talk about it publicly until two years later. This experience also demonstrates the importance of forcing intelligence officials to actually provide evidence. What a quaint idea, evidence, to back up their statements the way other government officials are expected to do. Too often, intelligence agency heads are able to just come up to Capitol Hill and insist they need particular programs or particular authorities without being pressed to actually justify these requests the way they would if they represented basically any other part of the executive branch. And too often, these agencies are allowed to use their mandate for secrecy as a convenient excuse to avoid answering questions. I spent much of 2012, for example, asking the NSA and the DNI whether anyone had done an estimate, just an estimate, 
of how many Americans had had their communications collected under Section 702 of the FISA law. The head of national intelligence, ODNI, and the NSA insisted that such an estimate was impossible. Oh, congressmen, oh, senators, we just can't possibly do it. Estimates are impossible. What they failed to tell the public was that the FISA court had already done one. Now, I can attest that our nation's intelligence professionals, the thousands of men and women who are out there every day, they're overwhelmingly dedicated and patriotic men and women who make real sacrifices to keep our country safe and to keep our country strong. And I believe they ought to be able to do their jobs confident in the knowledge that they have the support and trust of the American people. Unfortunately, the leadership of these agencies has pushed hard over the years for overly intrusive domestic surveillance programs that are of no clear value. They've compounded the problem by these misleading statements that I've cited today and in the past about their authorities and their activities. So now we're faced with the challenge of restoring public confidence. It isn't going to happen uh, overnight. And one way to start is by enacting real surveillance reform and ending bulk collection on ordinary Americans. Now, ending bulk collection is really the start of the reform agenda. I believe that meaningful surveillance reform also has to reform Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. The Congress intended for this program to target foreigners. But as the court pointed out in a recently declassified court document, tens of thousands, tens of thousands of wholly domestic communications were swept up in the collection. This is what the FISA court called a violation of, quote, the spirit of the law. I'll say, due to a quirk in the wording of the law, the court also said it was perfectly legal. Now, just think about that one. Just digest that for a minute. An interpretation of a law meant to target foreigners that collects tens of thousands of Americans' domestic communications in violation of what the law and the Constitution are all about, and the court says, okay with us on a technicality. I don't think that's going to sound right to most Americans. This becomes all the more problematic when you consider that the law does not require the intelligence agencies to get a warrant before searching through communications collected under Section 702 to find the communications of individual Americans. I call this the backdoor search loophole. In my judgment, such searches would clearly represent an end run around the privacy protections in the Bill of Rights. Intelligence officials have actively sought the authority to conduct these backdoor searches and have declined to say publicly whether or not they've been carried out. I believe that Congress ought to slam this backdoor search loophole. I believe we ought to just slam it shut and shut tight. Finally, I believe that the Congress needs to create an independent advocate to make the other side of the case on significant matters before the court. Right now, when the FISA court considers a major question of law, like whether the Patriot Act permits the dragnet surveillance of innocent Americans, the court's only going to hear one side you know, of the argument. I don't know of any other court in America that is so skewed, that is deliberately set up to only hear one side of the uh, argument. And it's time to overhaul this outdated, one-sided process and ensure that when the court is asked to decide what the law or the Constitution means on significant questions, it hears both sides of the argument. And then the court's major opinions ought to be redacted and released so that all members of the American public have an opportunity to understand how their laws and the Constitution are actually being interpreted. Executive branch officials spent the last several years making misleading statements about domestic surveillance to both Congress and the American people. That should never be allowed to happen again. My last words will just 
reflect on the developments, particularly of the last few months and what I think we've learned, as Jim characterized it in those kind of years uh, of painstakingly and behind the scenes trying to lay a roadmap for reform. The Amish Amendment in the House of Representatives, the vote that was held before the uh, recess, was a real wake-up call. If you had told me six months or a year ago that you'd get 200 votes on the floor of the House of Representatives and scores of representatives saying after the vote, you know, I guess I either should support that or something, you know, pretty close to it, I would have said you're dreaming. And obviously that was, you know, a wake-up call also to those who are defending, you know, business as usual. They, in the face of that vote, you know, went in mass, you know, to the hill and started buttonholing, you know, legislators and the like, and gave you a little bit of a sense of what we're going to be up against. Winning the reform battle is not going, you know, to be a glamorous kind of exercise. It certainly hasn't been over the last few years. And apropos of Jim's comments, it was not just lonely, but I think pretty dispiriting for the handful of reformers who try, tried every day to show up and advance the cause. For example, we worked very hard to get a few short lines of a secret court opinion declassified because we knew that once we started pulling out the threads, eventually the whole secret law edifice would start to unravel. And that's why we spent so much time trying to get declassified, that FISA court finding that the Fourth Amendment had actually been violated in the past. And when we got it you know, declassified, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, an important privacy group, saw that. They saw it and they said, well, you know, maybe there's a bit more to this. And they filed their lawsuit. And they managed to get that entire secret court opinion, which detailed serious constitutional violations declassified and released to the public. So I've been in tough battles before when it seemed like the odds were insurmountable. When I think of the days ahead, sometimes I think about the battle against the anti-internet freedom legislation that you might remember as the PIPA and the SOPA bills. I put a hold on the predecessor of those bills in late 2010 because I saw that there would be an opportunity for a groundswell of grassroots you know, op opposition. And we won. We won several years uh, later when there was a Senate vote scheduled to, in effect, try to defeat my hold. And millions of Americans weighed in and said, we're certainly against piracy and the like on the net, but we're just not going to sit idly by and watch all this damage to the cause of internet of freedom. Like in that you know, instance, it's going to take that kind of groundswell of support from lots of Americans across the political spectrum, letting their members of Congress know what they want, communicating that business is usual, is no longer OK, and they won't buy the idea that liberty and security are mutually exclusive. Key parts of the debate are starting now. They're going to unfold in the next few weeks. And that's why what Jim and Julian have put together is so important. Different bills are going to be brought forward. The leadership in both the House and the Senate is going to assess which bills they want to use as the base bill for discussion 
on the floor of the House and the Senate. For the millions of law-abiding Americans who care about protecting security and liberty, the values that the fathers, the founding fathers fought for, the time for action is now. For those millions of Americans, reformers are going to be there when those citizens ask us, how can we help? We'll be there. The time for reform is now. Thank you for having me. We, we have just about five minutes before we go to the next panel. Um, I think we have time for just a couple of questions. Uh, the ground rules are to please wait to be called on. Wait for the microphone so you can be heard. The official instructions are to identify yourself and your affiliation, but I'm a big fan of privacy and anonymity, so I don't think that'll be required. Do limit yourself to a question, though not a lecture. We don't have much time. Senator Wyden, you can, uh, you can take the responsibility oh, of picking well, your Oh, softball questions are especially welcome. Who would like to start? Gentleman's arm's going to fall off if he doesn't get to ask one. He's been waiting. Robert Schroeder with International Investor. Uh, I don't think this is softball because I asked it once before. And I don't expect uh, that you can supply us with evidence, but I'm going to ask you to speculate. Let's look in the future. Can you see a tipping point, a time when uh, this kind of intelligence will supply enough political power to those who play by the rules of the NSA, those who support the NSA and these programs, and work against those in politics who fight them. So in other words, are, are, um, what I'm really asking is, do you, do you detect any, any signs or do you worry about the future when in fact this information can be used politically as well? Well, of course, if you unpack the collection of bulk phone records on law-abiding Americans, can have plenty of impact on politics I mean, if someone is running you know, for office and the government knows that uh, that person called a psychiatrist three times in 36 hours, once you know, after midnight, that could certainly impact a you know, political election. And understand, again, the argument of the other side is we have rules that would prevent that. And what we have seen in these disclosures over the last few months is, as my children say, hello, those rules have been violated a lot. Yeah. Right, yes, ma'am. Um, so um, what gives, what, um, where's the cease and desist on um, their now analysis of the metadata? And what about where the NSA has um, tentacles into other um, parts of American government? I'm an activist Wall Street analyst. And um, my mail, my, uh, my apartment, I mean, I'm surveilled 24-7. So what stops, like, the post office from hindering my mail? And I know the NSA is behind this. I mean, how do you, um, and I, I so respect what, uh, thank God, somebody like yourself, thank God you're saying what you are. And God have mercy on you and protect you. But what prevents now, so you want reform here, but what will um, literally thwart their abuse throughout the rest of American government and society? The agenda that I outlined, this bipartisan you know, reform effort and trying to offer arguments that I think the other side is, is going to make because they'll be in effect laying out an alternative you know, scenario. They'll make those arguments to make their case. We'll have to both, in effect, lay out why they're wrong and why we're for an alternative is essentially the best answer I can give you in public. What I will tell you is there are some hugely important questions that have still not been answered, and I am just you know, going to keep uh, digging. For example, the NSA has still not given an adequate answer, a complete answer, to the question that I've asked, has the NSA ever collected or made plans to collect American cell site location information in bulk? 
They have not answered that completely. They have not answered it adequately. And I, as you may be aware, I've asked this a number of times. And I want the American public to know I'm going to keep asking that question until we get a complete answer. Let's do one more question before we conclude. One more question. You pick. When I was on a basketball scholarship, I always sat in the back of the room to duck. So let's let somebody in the back. Yes. See a hand, third to last row. Yeah. Hi, Mika Oyang from Third Way, formerly HIPSI staff. I wanted to ask you about the location-based data given the Supreme Court ruling and saying that collection of location-based data um, on a continual basis is not constitutional. What do you think the answer should be for the NSA given that it's not uh, law enforcement but intelligence collection? Well, there's probably not a whole lot I can add. If you couldn't hear the question, the question dealt with the court and... Uh, and tracking people with their, with their cell phones. Uh, I can tell you, Senator Chaffetz and I are going to push very hard for our legislation that would require a warrant to do that kind of tracking. Clearly, the law on this is ambiguous at best. I've asked several questions about the status of the law of senior intelligence leadership in public, and they have always said, well, the law is unsettled. We'll get back to you. And I see, again, the looks on your faces. What are the rules as of today while the law is unsettled, according to the intelligence leadership? We don't know. And it's one of the reasons why I'm going to keep pressing these questions that I mentioned this morning with respect to whether the NSA has ever collected or made plans to collect cell site location information in bulk. The law is unclear. The American people deserve an answer to that question. The legislation uh, Congressman Jason Chaffetz and I uh, have introduced, I think, would provide the best remedy, and that's how we'll proceed. More than anything, uh, those of you that are spending time studying the, these issues and, and working for reform, you should know that your hard work ha has paid off. If ever there was a time when we had a chance to put in place a new surveillance regime which demonstrated to the American people once and for all that Ben Franklin you know, was right. He always you know, understood you shouldn't you know, give up your liberty to have security. We can have both. That's what the reform agenda is all about. And thanks to all of you who've done so much to make it possible. Thank you.